you'd like to turn to the scripture reading this morning, it's found in Genesis and chapter 34. Genesis and chapter 34. If you're using the Pew Bible, the Black Bible's at the end of the pews, it's page 34 as well. Just having two verses from chapter 33 to open the reading and then reading into 34, right into chapter 35. Verse 18 of chapter 33. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on the way to Padan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it Elohi Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see women of the land. And when Shechem saw the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled the daughter of Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him, give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me. For as great a bride price, and the gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing. To give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree to you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we'll take your daughters to ourselves And we will dwell with you and become our people, or one people. 
But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son, Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all the father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let us dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were, they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came up upon to the sons of Jacob came upon and slay and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all of their wealth, all of their little ones and their wives and all what was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon, And Levi, you have brought trouble upon me by making me stink to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to, to the God whom appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. And change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had 
and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror fell from God upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakoth. God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you. I will give to the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him into the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him a pillar of stone he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it and Jacob called of the name of the place where God had spoken to him Bethel may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. A lot to cover this morning. I don't know, as we were reading through that just then, you kind of think to yourself, this is such a mess what's going on in this passage. Look at this really highly dysfunctional family situation going on right here. We've, 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 there's abuse in this passage, there's, there's, uh, there's murder, there's deception, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's lying, there's, oh my goodness, this just seems to be such a mess. What is going on in this passage. And I guess that kind of, you kind of think a couple of questions. Firstly, why do we have to talk about this this morning? I mean, I mean um, could we just skip Genesis 34? Can, can, we be, can we pretend on our series in the life of Jacob that this little scene doesn't exist and just somehow pretend it's not there and skip over to 35 and carry on? Or, or maybe, maybe we're asking the question, why on earth is that in our Bible? I mean, this, this is God's word, isn't it? We believe this is God's breathe, God breathed. This is God speaking to us. Why is a story like that, with all of that dysfunction and that mess and that human-induced chaos in this book, why is it there? Well, I think both of those questions are answered very, very simply, that behind this story, there is actually an ultra-important point going on. Now, now, we know there's dysfunction, we know there's chaos, we know there's lying, there's murder, there's abuse, there's pain, there's hurt. Every single turn, there's hardly anything good to say going on in Genesis chapter 34. 
But underneath all of that chaos is actually a very, very important point. Not just for Jacob's family, not just for the first handful of people who would have read this story, but there is an important point for anybody who has been counted among God's people over the span of history. There is an important point, and it's very, very simple, underneath all of this chaos for people like you and me. So before we we dive in to pick apart exactly what's going on here, we just need to do a little bit of history homework to enable us to understand what the significant point underneath all of this is. And for that, let me just cast your mind back to Genesis chapter 12. Really, really important part in the Bible. But it's where God comes to this man called Abram, and he says to him, Abram, right, I want you to leave your homeland and go to a land I'm going to call you to, and this land is going to be your land. And I'm going to call you to be the father of a great nation. You're going to have loads and loads of descendants, more than the stars in the sky, more than the grains of sand in the sea. You're going to be the father of that kind of a nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless the earth. I'm going to bless you so that you you might be a blessing. So, So God calls Abraham to be that character. So that's the promise. That's the covenant. That's the relationship that is forged between God and Abraham. That promise that one day, this this nation is going to be a nation that blesses the earth, and this is their land. Now, that that promise transfers to Isaac, Abraham's son, and that promise transfers to Jacob. That's the promise that Jacob is carrying. And this special nation is growing and growing and growing. Now, we need to understand that because that's the promise that Jacob is carrying. That God is calling and forming his people to be different from the world around them. That God is forming, calling, refining for himself a nation that he can use to shine his light to the world around them. That's the kind of people God is forming. You're going to be different, Israel. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be unlike so that you can reflect my nature. You can reflect my hope of salvation to the nations around you. I'm calling you to be different, consciously different, so that through you, Israel, God can make a difference. So they have to be set apart. Now, there's a problem that goes on in this passage, and it's something to do with that. So let's see right here, verse 18, Jacob, in chapter 33, Jacob came safely or peacefully to, what is that? The city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on his way from Paddan Aram. Now think about this. This is Jacob coming to a city called Shechem. Now we meet a character in chapter, tw- chapter 34 who's also called Shechem, same name as the city. But Shechem's a very significant place. Because in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, when Abraham leaves his homeland to go to the land of Canaan, the first place he stops off on his journey into this land is Shechem. So it's like Jacob is retracing Abraham's steps. This is highly significant since he's the one who's also carrying the promise that was initially made to Abraham. So he makes it to the land. Now think about it. Jacob's life has been turbulent to say the least. He has had conflict in his childhood. He's had betrayal from his father-in-law. He's had uh, a need for reconciliation with his brother, and he was full of fear because he thought his brother was going to kill him. Things have been awful for Jacob. It's been really hard. So he could be forgiven at this point, thinking to himself, 
I think I'm just going to put that really hard, long chapter behind me, and I'm going to put my feet up. The, the, the winter is done now. I can face the spring. Life is going to be a bit more easy for me. You, you, you know when we've had weeks like we've had this week? There's been, it's been rain. It's been dreary. It's not so bad now. But there's been a few days over the last couple of weeks you just think, oh, this is miserable. And even though we're in the beginning of December, we kind of think to ourselves, I can't wait to, for the spring. I can't wait for the flowers. I can't, me, I can't wait to sit on my patio and drink a cup of coffee and soak up a bit of vitamin D. I can't wait for that. So maybe Jacob's kind of thinking to himself, I can put my feet up. That horrific, horrendous, hard chapter is done. Life is now going to be easy for me. Well, no, actually, it's about to spiral out of control even more. So let's try and pick apart exactly what's going on. Look at the first couple of verses of Genesis 34. Now, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, look at this, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. Now, now commentators and scholars are in disagreement as to what exactly is going on here. But most of them will conclude that this is not the proper process that they should have gone about in acquiring a wife. Because obviously Shechem wants Dinah to be his wife and they've gone about it in the wrong way. So what happens is, is that there's a lot of pain. There is a lot of hurt and there is a lot of agony right here. And the family obviously was incredibly hurt. And look at some of the reactions we have right here from the people around Dinah. Verse 5. Jacob heard that he, that Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob, look at that, held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field... As soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by laying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now think about this. This is one of the most painful scenes this family has faced. It's one of the most painful things a family, human beings, can ever face. It just seems to be some of the worst things that human beings can do to each other happening right here. And we have these two reactions from the family. We have Jacob, it says, holds his peace. I don't know exactly why. I was trying to figure out why does he hold his peace. And I think we've got a couple of options. Number one, Jacob is perhaps acting like, I don't know, like a king would. So he's waiting for his sons to come in from tending the livestock. And he says to his sons, right, can you help me make a decision in what to do here? So maybe he's kind of like delegating authority. Or Jacob is being woefully passive to, 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 to a situation that is tearing his family to pieces. I don't really know what's happening here. I mean, he, he might be being passive. In the time when Dinah needs him to stand up for her. In the time when Dinah's going to need her dad to just plow through all of this messy situation and stand up for her and be that strong arm that she needs... He doesn't seem to do it, but we don't know why he holds his peace. But then we have another reaction from the family. We have the sons coming in from the field. And how do they respond? Look at that. It says they are indignant and very angry. 110% understandable, that reaction to what's happened. They, they, they're livid. They're outraged. They want to cry out for justice. This is not right. It says it should not be done. And they're absolutely right. 
But how are they going to respond to this? How are the sons going to deal with this? How are they going to seek to heal and restore? Well, actually, they don't seek that. They seek to deceive. But, but right at this point, what we have is like these conversations begin to happen between the two. We've got Hamor, Shechem's dad, on one side. We've got Jacob and Jacob's sons on the other. And we see this in verse 8. And look at what Hamor says about his son. The soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give her to me to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. There's that word, dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And then Shechem also ends up saying, I will pay anything to have Dinah as my wife. I will, I will do anything to have her. You just name the price. I will eat. It's almost like he's saying, I will even be bankrupt to have Dinah. I will do anything. You name the price. And so what the sons of Jacob ends up saying to them, verse 13, sorry, verse 14, we cannot do this thing and give our sister to the one is uncircumcised. Seems like a strange request, doesn't it? For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you becoming circumcised. And then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become, become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we will be gone. It seems like a strange request like that, doesn't it? Everyone in Shechem, every single male, you're going to be circumcised and then we can dwell together as one people. Well, that's, it's kind of an understandable request because they don't seem to want to say, we will, be, become, we, will, we will become like you, you become like us, they seem to be saying. Now think about circumcision. What was circumcision supposed to be for the Israelite people? It's actually quite a significant symbol. Now God had said to Abraham, right, I'm going to form you into a great nation. And a sign and a seal and a symbol for this, for this covenant, this agreement is going to be circumcision. So every single one of, you, one of you guys gets circumcised because that's going to be a sign and a symbol. Seems strange to us in 21st century, but it was a sign and a symbol to Israel that said, you're being set apart. Israel, you're different. Israel, you're not going to be like the other nations. This is to remind you that you carry my promise. This is to remind you that the hope of the world is going to come through you. This is to remind you that you are to reflect my nature. You are to be different. You are to make a difference in this world. I'm calling you to be different. So circumcision was initially intended to be a sign that for Israel to remind them who they were and for them to shine light in the world. So it was supposed to be something that brought hope. It was something that's supposed to bring life. And so what they say to these guys is, well, you're going to have to all get circumcised. Now, here's the interesting thing. Everybody in the city ends up saying, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Look at this right here. They meet with them at the gate. Hamor and Shechem go to everyone. And look at verse 24, the conclusion of this conversation. And all who went out the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised, all who went out of this gate of the city. I don't know about you, but this is, this is real brotherhood right here. I don't know how, how many guys in this room would, would, would get circumcised if their mate said, I've got a favor to ask of you. But, but this, is, this, is, this seems to be real brotherhood. Yes, Shechem, we will go for it. Now, Shechem's a leader, of course, so he has authority and he can ask that. 
But all of the guys in the city say, yeah, okay, mate, we will, we, we will do this for you. So, this sign of life for Israel, how's that going to be used? Look at verse 25. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city, and while it felt secure, and killed all of the males. Now, now, of course, they're going to feel sore at this point. I'll be a bit candid. I had a friend who was circumcised in his mid-twenties. And so this, this, uh, I didn't think it was going to be that much of an impact on his normal everyday life. But, but he had to be off work for two weeks. He, he couldn't walk for a whole week. He had a fever for three days. So when it says they were sore, that's an understatement. That's a real understatement. But these guys use it as an opportunity. Simeon and Levi use it as an opportunity to slay the entire city. Look at this, verse 26. They killed Hamor and the son of Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And it gets worse. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because because they had defiled their sister. And they took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. Their wealth, all their little ones and their wives... All that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So hang on a second. What Jacob's sons have ended up doing is using circumcision, which was supposed to be a sign that reminded Israel that they're to be different, set apart, unlike, and to proclaim God's light of salvation into the world. And what do they end up They end up using circumcision to end up killing the very people they were supposed to proclaim the message of hope to. There seems to be a complete distortion of what was supposed to be happening. A complete distortion in their minds. A distortion of what circumcision was supposed to be. And now there's an entire city that has, has lost all of their men. And of course, Jacob is livid. Verse 30. You brought trouble on me. Making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob's heartbroken. Weren't we supposed to be the kind of people that proclaim God's love, God's salvation, and the hope of the rescuer? Weren't we supposed to be that kind of a people? Now everyone around here hates me. But there is a solution here. Verse 35, chapter 35, God speaks to Jacob, and Jacob says something very, very interesting to his household. Look at this. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to, God who, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, read this, and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. But he says to it, put away these foreign gods. Purify yourselves. Change those garments. Don't be like them. We're going to Bethel. We're leaving Shechem. So, so they make their way to Bethel, and at Bethel, a significant place for Jacob, that's where God has met with him before, and God meets with him again. Look at verse 11. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. 
A nation and company of all nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the, give the land to your offspring after you. So it's a reaffirmation of the same promise, the same relationship, relationship, the same covenant that was given to Abraham and now that Jacob carries. So look at what's going on here. You have this, this mess that goes on in Shechem. The families are hurting. The city is hurting. There's been lying. There's been murder. There's been abuse. It just seems ultra dysfunctional. And then Jacob says to his family, after them, all of those negotiations of let's become one people, let's dwell together, let's be one people. Jacob says, right, it's time to go. God said, what does he say? Get away, get rid of your household gods. Get rid of those foreign gods. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. We're going to Shechem. So we've got to ask the question at this point, what actually is going on under all of this? We've said it's chaotic. We've seen it's chaotic. But what is going on? What are some of the clues in what we've just read to try and see what's happening? And here's what I think is going on. There's been an awful lot of talk throughout Genesis 34 between the, two, the people of Shechem and this fledgling nation of Israel. There's been a lot of talk of becoming one people and dwelling together. It seems as though there's a lot of influencing of one another that's going on. And then Jacob's words seem to be revealing and typify everything that's gone on. Get rid of those gods. Purify yourselves. We're going to Shechem. You see, what I think has been going on, and Jacob's words reveal that, and the actions of his, his sons show us too, that this fledgling, migrating family has been influenced to the point by the world around them that they have done this heinous thing to Shechem. They have absorbed the practices, absorbed the thinking, absorbed the behavior, absorbed the gods of the world around them to the point where they don't really look different anymore. You see, God's plan for Israel always was, and the plan for his people always is, to be a kind of people who are different, to be a kind of people who are set apart, to be a kind of people who are unlike the world around them so that through them he could shine his light of salvation into the world. God calls his people to be different so that they can make a difference in his strength. God had always said to Israel, be holy for I am holy. I'm your God. You will be my people and through you I'll shine a light into the world. You will be different so that I can make a difference through you. That's true for the church as well, isn't it? That's true for people like you and me. Doesn't God say that over and over again in the New Testament to us? Be holy for I am holy. Be like a city on a hill. Be like salt in the world. I'm going to turn to Titus chapter 2 just to read a little bit here. Titus chapter 2 makes a real similar point. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's been the plea on God's people throughout history. It's the same plea that comes to you and me through God's word. God calls his people to be different. He calls them to be set apart. He calls them to be unlike so that through them, 
he can make a difference in the world. Different in order to proclaim this promise of salvation that Jacob and his family hoped for. Different in order for me and you to carry that same promise revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's two things I think this passage gives to us. It gives us a plea. And what's the plea? The plea is that we are to be different. We belong to God. We've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We are different, set apart, and unlike. So that we can make a difference for God's purposes in our world. You see what's going on here? Genesis 34 just seems to be this melding. They don't look any, they're not looking any different to the world around them. Get up, purify yourselves, we're going to Bethel. So the plea is to be different in order to make a difference. But there's a challenge. Because what happens right here, and it's more than we like to admit, that God's people are more influential than they really like to admit. And the same goes for us. We're called to be different. But we look at our own lives. We look at our own hearts. We look, I look at my own heart and mind. I know I'm more influential than I really like to admit. So there's a challenge here for us. There is a warning for us. I think Tim Keller, pastor in New York, sums it up really, really well here. If we're not deliberately thinking about our culture, we will be conformed to it without ever, know, without ever knowing it's happening. Way, way back in the early days of cinema, there was something that caused a bit of a stir. It, was, it was, became known as subversive advertising. But basically what happened in cinemas was, uh, you know before you watch a film, you have these trailers before the film comes on, and then you get to watch a film. So people show up early enough to watch some of these trailers, buy a drink, uh, get, a, get, get some Coke, get some popcorn, get a hot dog. What all these advertisers would do is they would, during these trailers, would flick up very, very, very quickly a picture of a hot dog, a picture of a can of Coke, or a picture of some popcorn. And and it was so quick that the human beings in the cinema couldn't consciously recognize that that had just happened. But subconsciously, their brains registered it. And so what they started to think to themselves was, oh, would you like some popcorn? Oh, fancy a Coke or a hot dog. Let's go buy some. So, So what the advertisers were doing was manipulating the people in the cinema to just get a bit more money out of them. It became known as subversive advertising. And so there was, there was laws introduced because this was not ethically okay. And so they said, right, we can't do this because people are more influential than they realize. The, the same is true for me. The same is true for us. We're more influential than we like to admit. You see, what's going on in Genesis 34 is they're being influenced by the world around them. And it seems like they don't even notice it until Jacob says... We're going to Bethel. Let's get out of here. Purify yourselves. I want to kind of bring this down to earth a little bit more for us by saying four things this doesn't mean and three things it does mean. We'll do this pretty quickly. What what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean arrogantly looking down on the culture around us. It doesn't mean we take some kind of a high stance and say, we're nothing like them, we don't want to be like them, we're far better. That's not what this means, this this separation and being unlike and being different. Neither does it mean pessimistically thinking culture can't be changed. 
Being separate, being different, being set apart in order to make a difference doesn't mean we pessimistically look at culture and say, this is long gone and can't be changed. If that was true, then the work of William Wilberforce wouldn't have made any sense. It doesn't mean the church cuts herself off from being a lifeline to the culture. Way too many churches in our country have done exactly that. God calls us to be different. He calls us to be unlike. So let's stay as far away as we possibly can. You know what happens? Those churches die within two or three generations. And lastly, it doesn't necessarily mean throwing away your TV and your phones. So what does this mean? What does this being different, being separate, being being not influenced by the world does actually mean? Well, it does mean. It does mean we should avoid naivety. It does mean we should avoid gullibility. It does mean we should avoid thoughtlessly going through life thinking we're not influenced by the world. You see what happens in Genesis 34, and Jacob's words prove this, that there's an influence that's gone on. There's a dwelling together that seems to have got Israel out of line. And he has to kind of recalibrate them. I think it's important for us not to be naive to think that we won't be influenced. When we read magazines that present us with those ultra-happy people, they're communicating messages to us. When we pick up the news, we read our newspapers, we turn on our news channel. There are things being told us. There's philosophies, there's thoughts, there's behavior, there's patterns and ways of doing life. Think about the uh, recent explosion of those box set series on Netflix and Amazon Prime. There's all kinds of things being communicated in those. There's all kinds of scenes that affect our soul and our mind. We shouldn't be so naive to think that we're not influenced by that kind of stuff. I think the plea from this passage, firstly, is to not be naive about how we're influenced. Secondly, we must provide a more compelling way to view reality and live. The call on God's people is always to be different, to be set apart, to be unlike, so that he can make a difference through us. So if you're working in an office throughout the week, the call on your life is to be different. If you're working in business, the call is to engage with that differently, Christianly. If if you're engaging with people in your workplace, you have students or you are a student, the call is to be different. Where people backstab or bully, or hurt. You're called to speak life and to lift up and proclaim the truth of the gospel in those situations. Now, I know some of you are raising children. You might think to yourself, well, I don't really have, uh, I don't have much of a stage to be different because I don't really get out of the house that much. We'll never forget, a friend of mine said just recently, the living room floor is one of the biggest stages in your entire life. There's the place where we are different. Lastly, what does this mean? We must move away from being influential and towards being influential. It's one of the problems going on in Genesis. The problem with Israel, and Jacob's recalibration shows us this, that his family had missed the fact that they were to be the influencers in the land of Canaan. They were to be the influencers in the world. But what happened, it seems, is that they then have to purify themselves, get out of Shechem, and get to Bethel. We are called to be the influences in our broken and needy world. But I think one of the most beautiful things about this passage is that even though there is an almighty mess in this family, an almighty mess going on for the kind of people, who, the people who are called to be God's people who are different in this world, 
God still shows his grace to them. He's still merciful. He's still patient. They are still his people. He is still their God. And he is still planning to bring about the hope of salvation, Jesus Christ, through them. They slipped up. Israel is going to continue to slip up over and over and over again. And each time they are confronted by a God of grace who says, you are still my people and you will still carry this promise. Hey, I want to pray and then we're going to turn to the table together. Lord, we are grateful for your word, how it speaks into our lives. Lord, we see from Genesis 34 that your people fall foul of what we do so often. We don't, we don't look different. But we see they are met by your grace. And throughout history, your people are constantly met by your grace. And we hear you say over and over again that we belong to you. We are yours. And you're calling us to be different, to be set apart, to be unlike. So Lord, we pray you'd help us to constructively and critically pick through the ways in which we are influenced. Help us to be different by your spirit. Help us to be different in your strength so that we can, like Jacob's family, carry this promise of salvation to the world around us. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.